Um, one of the things that uh, I'm easily amused, but one of the things that's really interesting to do if you ever have some time and in an internet connection is just to look at the history of Christian artwork throughout the ages. Um, because it's interesting, depending on your time and place, Jesus looks a little bit different everywhere and anywhere that you go. Um, now, I'm actually glad Michael mentioned vacation face because there is one thing that believers across time and history have agreed on, the most important thing. Jesus was rocking a magnificent beard. Um, so, no offense taken, none given, the Lord is with you, Michael. Uh, um, so, so, but other than that, other than the beard, things vary when we draw Jesus, when we image Jesus throughout time. Um, sometimes he looks Jewish and Middle Eastern, only sometimes. Um, a lot of the time he's Swedish, I don't know why. Um, but, but what's really interesting, to me at least, is, is the variation you see in how hardcore Jesus is. Uh, how, in any given representation, in the 80s and 90s particularly, I think the church sort of had a problem. Um, Jesus had always just stepped out of the salon. His, his robe looked like a bathrobe. He had this, this sort of vacant, dewy gaze. He's always holding a lamb that might as well be a puppy. I, I, if, if you were there, you saw some version of this. Um, and, you know, you would hang that picture right up next to your church-mandated copy of the, the footprints in the sand thing, and you'd never make the connection where, like, does this Jesus have the upper body strength to carry anybody? Um, you know, but, hey, it was the 90s, and it gets a pass. Um, which is interesting, because this is in contrast to Middle Ages Jesus. Oh, my gosh, have you seen the pictures of Middle Ages Jesus? He, he dies on the cross like 90s Jesus, but after that, he starts taking names. Uh, he's, he's kicking down the gates of hell. He's choking out dragons. He's marching at the heads of armies, crushing enemies underneath his face, feet. Uh, Middle-aged Jesus is hardcore. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's pretty intense. Uh, Middle-aged Jesus is also still super white, but you, you can't win them all. Um, so the, the title of this message is The Unchangeable Character, and, and that comes from our passage today in, in the book of Hebrews. We'll be in chapter 6, looking at verses 13 through 20. Um, and it, it's called The Unchangeable Character just because despite our, our totally awesome artwork throughout the ages, as, as clothes have changed, as our tastes have changed, as our values have changed, as the way we see and imagine God has changed, the only thing that actually hasn't changed in the midst of all that is God himself. This morning, more than anything, my, my desire is to impress upon all of you and to share with you guys the unchangeable, inviolate, unalterable character of God and his purposes. And because of that, we can know that salvation, that the salvation secured for us in Christ, could be on no surer or more certain a foundation. From what I've seen and experienced in my own life, all of us are inclined to see God a little bit differently certain parts of God's character, uh, a given side of his attributes, will just jump out at us a little bit clearer, a little bit more readily than some other parts of him. All of it's true. All of it can be said, this is true about God. But just some parts of those will resonate more readily with who we are, how we're wired, how we were raised, whatever it might be. And I think that's just because people are different. And that doesn't surprise God. It's why the Bible is made up of a ton of different kinds of literature. It's not just history. It's not just narrative. It's just not law codes or prophetic oracles or, um, 
or songs or poetry or any of these other things. It's all of those things. And that's because God in his infinite wisdom know that while all of it's gainful for our lives, age by age, culture by culture, person by person, somewhere in this book, there's a pointed verse with your heart's name on it. Because all of it speaks to the full character of God. And, and the danger of any given time and place drawing a one-size-fits-all Jesus for itself is at least twofold. First, you, just, you run the risk of only proclaiming to people the aspects of God that they most readily get. And, and second, you end up not speaking the language of the people who maybe don't as easily see God in that way, in the, in the popular conception of the culture. And so I want to share this reading from the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 6, again, 13 through 20. It's a section, I think, that has something to say to us about some of the harder attributes of God, his power, his integrity, and how they relate to grace. And I think within it, we may see a powerful insight into the deafening weight of God's glory and the unchanging character of his purpose. So read with me, if you will. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It is God's word for us today. For me, I have always clearly felt the power and majesty and holiness of God. That's how I was wired. That's how I was raised. Nature and nurture, however you break it down, that's the parts of God that just jumped out at me. And the parts of the Bible that announce that, that, that proclaim God's incalculable power, overwhelming might from its pages, those parts of the Bible were, were naturally highlighted for me. I saw those. I get it. God is bigger than me. I'm on team Middle Ages, Jesus, and I'm not ashamed. (laughs) But there are challenges to seeing and acknowledging those sides of God, that part of God. Because when we really feel how holy, how righteous, and how awesome God is, from that vantage point, to me at least, there is no more obvious a position to in turn recognize how unholy, how unrighteous, how unawe-inspiring I in and of myself truly am. When you take the time to engrave on the eye of your mind the vision of God's wrath at evil, the unswerving goodness of his character, the judge who can't be bribed, whose judgment can't be sidestepped, whose decision can't be appealed, it's awesome right up until you realize that you're confronted with your own sin and, oh no, God's good, I'm not, this will not end well for me. It's a truth that in isolation can drive you to despair. And and at times it has me, and and I think it's because we rightly sense that in God, we come before a holiness that we do not and cannot live up to. But in the church, this is easy for us. This is a non-problem, right? Because we know the answer. This is Christianity 101 stuff. It's grace, right? Grace. You get it? That's grace. Problem solved. Done. But I wonder sometimes if we run there too quickly and too lightly. 
too cheaply and just say, yeah, sure. God's perfectly holy. He's, he's ultimately good and he's going to destroy evil with extreme prejudice. But you know, grace, Jesus, that stuff. And it's true. There's nothing more true than that. But when we come to this issue with that limp handshake, I wonder if the gospel will make in our hearts the impact that it ought. That the, the impact that the gospel historically has made for believers across time. We, we can't come to people wired with this Middle Ages mindset, just hand them a picture of 90s Jesus at the spa petting kittens and resolve that theological conflict. We cannot paper over God's holiness with cheap grace. Now, in our section in Hebrews, we've jumped into the middle of the letter, we have jumped into the middle of the chapter, we have jumped, to some extent, into the middle of a larger argument. Um, so if any of that felt a little discombobulated, uh, don't worry, you're not imagining it, and we will walk together through it. But the short version, just to set up, the author's talking to Jewish Christians, people who know the Old Testament. Uh, and so throughout this whole book, he's, he's just making allusions, he's doing references, he's, he's, he's pulling from these Old Testament ideas and stories saying, hey guys, it's like this, it's like that. And, and, and they're getting it, and sometimes we need a little bit more translation. Um, but so just before our section, the author was warning his readers against falling away from the faith. About the, he's, he's, he's telling them about the deplorable spiritual state of people who are shown a glimpse of who God is, who share fellowship with his saints, and then turn their backs on it. And he paints this dark picture, and he says, you do not want to be there. You do not want to go there. It is a bad place. But then here in our section, because that, that's what happens right before we picked up, but here in our section, it's a section of encouragement. He switches gears, and he says, okay, but that's not your fate. God has better things for you, the things of salvation. And so... This, is, this, this section we read, that, this is what caught my mind when I was reading through this uh, some time ago because the author signals, okay, guys, I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to assure you of your salvation in Christ. And I immediately think I know where he's going to go. I think, okay, he, he tells us the scary stuff, and now he's going to back up a little. He's going to say, oh, yeah, but grace, Jesus, you know, that stuff. And he doesn't, or at least he doesn't do just that. Instead, he speaks my language. He wants to comfort his readers, and to do that, he begins with the complete power of God. He tells a Bible story. He says, hey guys, remember Abraham? Remember that story? God told him to leave his home and everything he'd ever known, and he makes Abraham this impossible promise. He says, I'm going to make this senior citizen with a barren wife the father of a great nation, <laughs> and that through him all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Not only does God promise that, on top of it, he swears to it. He doubles down. He vows by his name that it will be. And, and then the author sort of follows this up with an explanation. He kind of just, he's a student of human nature. He points out this generally true thing. He says in verse 16, when people make an oath, they always swear by something greater than themselves, right? And, you know, his readers, and I assume us are like, yeah, that's kind of how it works. Um, you know, we, we swear on our mother's grave. We swear by the Bible. We, all these things just because there's this, this thing where there's an assumption where we appeal to a higher authority saying, if I do not deliver, if I am lying, if this is not so, the thing to which I'm tying this oath has the ability, has the power, has the authority to render judgment for broken faith. And so, when God swears, 
something that's interesting. We see God in his complete power. He promises to do the impossible, and he swears to it. When he does, he swears by himself, because there is nothing and no one greater by whom to swear. There is no higher authority, no court of appeals, just the thundering voice of God Almighty saying, it will be, I swear to it. And can there be any more oath that is any more final for its confirmation? And it's interesting because God could have sworn by the earth and the sky and every star in it, but as we read scripture, those things will pass away. And the great and glorious name of God will not. Psalm 102 actually puts it this way. uh, Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away, but you are the same and your years have no end. In this promise, God has just signaled in in a kind of scarily low-key way how there's not a thumb's width of creation over which his power does not authoritatively rest. And uh, it's not bragging either. It's just sort of this bland statement of fact. And interestingly, we see this with Jesus too. And, and, and I bring that up just because sometimes one of our end runs around um, God's power is we try to say, oh, well, yeah, sure, God's scary and mean, but Jesus, he's nice. He's all sunshine and rainbows. Um, and the problem with that, really, there's, there's two big ones. First is it's just a, a failure of Trinitarian understanding to say that. And B, it's just not true. Uh, Jeeing around Jesus was scary. I admire the disciples, but sometimes when I'm reading the Gospels, I pity those poor slobs. Um, I don't know how I would have handled it. A story that's always stuck out to me is the one in Matthew 8, where all the disciples are on a boat, and there's a storm going on, and Jesus is sleeping through it, whatever, no big deal. And the disciples are scared. The storm's getting worse. They're like, we're going to die. But they're waiting because on some level, they're trying to decide, is this deadly enough to be worth waking up Jesus? And that just tells you something right there. (laughs) But they do wake him up eventually and they're like, Jesus, sorry for waking you, but we're going to die horribly. And and he doesn't say, oh, guys, thanks for the information. I appreciate that. He's like, no. Oh, you have little faith. And he stands up and tells nature itself to stand down, and at the sound of his voice, it does. And then he goes back to sleep. (laughs) Like nothing has happened. And the disciples were scared of the storm. They were convinced they were going to die. But as Jesus goes back to catch a few more Z's after telling a natural disaster, essentially to shut up, um, you have to wonder who they were more scared of. And I think scripture gives us a hint when they say, they, they talk to each other and they say, who is this that even the winds and sea obey him? And the answer, of course, is the complete power of God. So in our author's bid to comfort us, to assure us of the trustworthiness of the salvation believers have in Christ, so far, he's just pointed out the complete power of God. His ridiculous, terrifying power. How is this comforting? How is he going to bring this bus back into the station? I'm not feeling comforted. I'm a little uneasy. Um, But he doesn't stop there because it's not just about God's power. It's also about his complete and unchanging integrity. And that's really the heart of this section in a lot of ways. Because God makes Abraham that impossible promise. And as time passes, and Abraham has all these crazy adventures where he screws up over and over because he's a human being, um, the day comes when God, in his complete power, does the impossible. Abraham's wife conceives. She gives birth to a son. He names him Isaac. God keeps his promise. And Abraham experiences great joy. His destiny has changed. Everything is reversed 
from the sad trajectory it had been on. Prior to the promise, Abraham had been readying himself for decades to die and have his name and his house die with him. And then suddenly, because he has a son, he has a very different future. And everything is good. And then one day, God comes and tells Abraham something he does not want to hear. Return what you were given. Abraham, I need you to go up a hill some distance from here, and I want you to give back the answer to the promise. And I do not have any idea what went through Abraham's head that night. I don't know what demons he wrestled with. I shudder to consider it, but Scripture says he rose early the next morning and went to do as he had been instructed. He went to sacrifice his only son. And Abraham had already seen in Isaac's birth the completeness of God's power, the ability to deliver on the impossible. But I wonder if on that long walk up the hill, that would have been enough for us. Because God might make you obey. He might destroy you if you don't. But is it God's power that compels our obedience, our faith and our trust in him? Perhaps in part, but the Bible tells us that Abraham had faith. And I can't help but wonder if that was faith in who God was. That he might not have known what God was doing, but he knew who he was and he knew that he was steadfast and faithful. That he had faith in the complete integrity of God. Because God had made a promise and by all outward appearances, it looked like it was a promise that was about to be broken. But on that day, Abraham obeyed. Abraham trusted in the integrity of the God that we worship. And at the last moment, God says, stand down, Abraham. This is not a sacrifice you will have to make. And he spares his son. And then God makes that oath, because actually, in the timeline of this, the promise and the oath are separated a little bit chronologically. God makes a promise at the beginning of Abraham's journey, um, when he's, you know, younger, like still ancient, but like less ancient. Uh, And... And then he goes on this adventure and he does all these things and time passes and Isaac is born and then this event happens, this, this hardest, darkest night of the soul. And then after that, that's when God makes the oath on top of the promise. Abraham, I've said all this will happen. I swear by name, my name it will be, you can trust me. God doubles down saying, you can trust me. And the thing is, essentially, what, when God says he'll do something, he'll do it. Why? Well, A, because of his complete power, he can. He has the ability to do so. He has the raw power to secure whatever his desire may be. But on top of that, if he says he will do something, he will, and it will happen simply because he said he would. Because of his complete and unchanging integrity. And as I, as I say those words, as I, as I wrote those words last night, I couldn't help but, but ask, and is that something I can say for myself? That's something we can say for ourselves. Do we have that kind of integrity? And I know I certainly don't. You're all free to lie about it and say you do, but I know better. (laughs) The the word integrity is actually kind of interesting. It comes from this old Latin word, integritus, um, and it means complete, whole, or undivided in its oldest sense. It's where we get our mathematical term, integer. And it's interesting because... It's the words come to mean for us, uh, integrity, you know, moral, rectitude, honesty in dealing, those sorts of things. And then you have this older meaning. It's like, okay, how did we get there? And, and it's because we recognize that those positive moral traits we ascribe to the word integrity today, they can't come from a divided person. 
someone who is double-faced, someone who has double standards, engages in double-dealing, who double-speaks. And God is one, and God is complete in his integrity. 2 Timothy 2.13 puts it like this, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You should read the whole Bible. It's an amazing, beautiful thing, and God will use it to change you. But if you are lazy, um, you can just break it down as, as, as one giant marathon slugfest of God's ongoing faithfulness in the man, face of man's faithlessness. In fact, at one point um, in the history of God's people, it gets so bad that God comes to one of his prophets and essentially says, hey, Hosea, want to know what it's like to be me? Marry a prostitute, live that way for a while, because that's my life, buddy. Um, Essentially, it's heavily paraphrased, but that's how it it goes down. Um, And yet through it all, God honors every promise. He fulfills every vow. He meets every iota of right dealing with people. And that's because of his complete integrity. And it's not because that God needs us and he, he can't leave us even though we're all wrong for him. Um, no. It's because he wouldn't be who he is if we could change him. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. In God we come to the ultimate immovable object who scarily enough is also an unstoppable force. God will not be moved. He will not forsake his goodness, his righteousness. He will not surrender his glory and make himself something he is not for any reason. And this, in a way, brings us right back to where we started, the deafening weight of God's glory. Who am I? Who are you? Who is anyone that they should approach the throne of the maker of the heavens and the earth? In Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah sees the throne room of God, and it's this majestic, impressive, beautiful scene. Uh, He sees the throne. There are angels singing praises to God. God's uh, train, the train of his robe, fills the temple. And when God speaks, the whole earth shakes And Isaiah doesn't get all excited. He doesn't go Pentecostal. He doesn't start worshiping. He's terrified. He says, Woe is me, for I have seen the God of Israel. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of an unclean generation. Sometimes in our missional community, before we pray, we actually read that passage together uh, so we can just remember who it is that we're dealing with. Isaiah enters into God's presence, and his first response is, I'm done for. This will not end well for me. Now feel free to read Isaiah to to see how that goes. Um, And uh, interestingly enough, again, this is something that we see with Jesus whenever he lets the mask slip a little bit and lets someone catch wise to who they're really talking to. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus performs this miracle before Peter. This is the first time he and Peter have, have met essentially. And Peter gets some small, incomplete sense of who he's dealing with. And his immediate response to this miracle isn't to say, wow, that's amazing, can you do it again? Uh, He says, no, go from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. If we start to truly understand these two aspects of God's personality and being his, his terrifying power, his steadfast integrity, which shames human faithlessness by its very existence, we must struggle with the existence of a God of unstoppable power, who detests the evil we have done and will accomplish whatever he has set his face toward. 
So for me, I have, to, I have to ask, how could I, how could anyone have any hope of salvation from such a God? And what I think we see here in this passage is an answer to that question. How could you have assurance of salvation from anything less? It's not in spite of God's power or his integrity that men can be saved. It's because of it. It's by it. Those are the foundational qualities of God by which we can confidently say that what he has promised he will do. And God has revealed that he is complete in grace as well. Because he is complete in power and integrity, we can be certain beyond all measure that he has both the ability and the intent to complete his promised purposes for us. And the very, very, very good news of the gospel is that his purpose is to call people of every color, creed, nation, out of darkness, and into the light of salvation offered in Christ. To justify people by faith rather than by works. To bring us to a place where we can enter the throne room of God, not as cowering slaves, but as adopted sons and daughters. The gospel tells us that death doesn't have the final word, that pain and disease and addiction and heartache all have an expiration date. The salvation is coming. Because the, the thing is, the, the pagans of old, they, they worshipped beings gods that were powerful but completely lacked in integrity. You could try to appease those beings and uh, with enough sacrifice perhaps or you could try to deal with them and get the better end of the exchange but you could never trust them. And I asked, could we confidently hang our hopes for salvation there? Or maybe if you prefer, there's the, the streamlined, modernized version of God that's become somewhat popular as of late where God does kind of have a, a genial, friendly integrity to him but no power. A spiritual grandpa who just wants you to be happy, um, but who asks nothing, who enforces nothing. And I wonder, can that being save us from hell and slavery? Can that being defeat evil and put an end to death itself for our sakes? I suppose we could also throw in with the secularists. That's another option. We'll look to each other to save us. We'll look to human progress to save us. And that, of course, is the most laughable option of all because we don't have power or integrity. We, we don't have the ability to save ourselves or even the good sense to realize we need saving apart from God's spirit knocking at our door and saying, you are severely jacked up. But this God, this God who is the God who lives has purpose to save us, and it is a purpose unchangeable in its character. He has set himself to it. As Abraham before us, we can trust in what God has promised because of his ultimate power and steadfast integrity. And through Christ, he has promised and delivered complete grace. That is the impossible promise that God has made to us. It's the impossible promise he made to Abraham, and we are heirs of that promise for all the peoples of the world to be blessed through his children. It's a promise that God fulfilled when God himself was born as a man, a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Isaac who was spared. When our Lord and Savior Jesus, God in the flesh, was born and lived a perfect life. And when his hour had come, and knowing that only torment and death awaited him, this same Jesus did not change from his saving purpose but instead, as Luke 9 tells us, he set his face toward Jerusalem. 
Because the fact is, yeah, Abraham did not have to give up his son. Abraham did not have to pay that price. He did not have to walk up that hill and lose everything. And why? The reason he didn't have to is because God kept his promise. God gave his only son. Jesus, in our place, walked up that hill outside Jerusalem and lost everything. He became sin in our place that we in turn might become the righteousness of God. He drank the whole cup of God's wrath that I have spent so much of my life fearing, but it is empty. For those in Christ, that cup is empty. It is finished. And so this this deafening weight of God's glory, that is why this section speaks so clearly to me. It cuts through the, the fog of my doubts and fears Because intentionally or not, so many times when we talk about the wrath of God, when we talk about his holiness or his justice or his glory, when we talk about grace, we step back a little bit. Maybe we don't mean to, maybe we just want to get to the best part quickest. But it feels sometimes like when we talk about grace, we feel like we need to mitigate or tame or take back a little bit of God's power, his integrity, or both. And here is scripture saying no. Full speed ahead on both. That's what makes grace work. That's how you know it's working. God's non-negotiable power and unchanging integrity are the guarantors of our certain hope. We can rejoice in the fact that we can't change God because we don't need to. And when when we understand him, we don't want to. And incidentally, we couldn't anyway. Apart from Christ, you would do rightly to fear the unstoppable, implacable, and promised wrath of God. But in Christ, we have been made subject to God's unstoppable, implacable purpose of forgiveness and restoration. How can I escape the wrath of so great a God? No. In Christ, how could I ever hope to escape the mercy of so great a God? If you have been born again, you stand in the grace of God who has, from before the foundation of the world, marshaled his powers and set his face toward your good for his glory, and he will not surrender his glory, so he will not let you go. And don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not declaring anybody in here saved. I don't have that power. Um, and, and I'm not even telling you with this message how to know if you are saved. Those are separate sermons. Those are different parts of the book of Hebrews, actually. But what I'm hoping you have heard today, that as you, as you seek the answers to those life and death questions about whether or not you are in Christ I want you to know that there can be no firmer foundation on which salvation might rest than here, than where it does, in God's power, his integrity, and his grace. In short, in Christ. The oath and the promise, those two inviolate things in which it is impossible for God to lie. There's actually another place in the Bible where God doubles down and gives an oath. It's Psalm 110, which we read together a little earlier, and uh, which the author of Hebrews quotes back in chapter 5. And I think part of the reason he told us Abraham's story was to drive home just how confidently we could cling to the prophetic word given in Psalm 110. We're speaking to Jesus, the Holy Spirit through King David declares, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, Jesus, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now the the, the argument that the author of Hebrews is making about Melchizedek is a big one. It goes through like several chapters of the book, so read it to f- understand it fully. But the author is telling these believers, is telling us that hope in Jesus is not misplaced. That there is a sure and steadfast anchor for your souls that you can cling to. 
You can hope confidently that Jesus has bridged the vast and impossible chasm between sinful man and holy God. Jesus is a forerunner on our behalf, has passed through the curtain that divides the holy from the unholy. We can know that we have an eternal high priest interceding with the Father for us, mediating our worship, having offered himself once and for all for a, as a perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty for sin. We can know that we're heirs of a glorious promise, that we're inheritors of a new and better covenant. My friends, I want to leave you with this. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Forget what you think you know about God. Tear away any rules you've written about what he has to be like in order to make you more comfortable and fix your eyes on Jesus. If you have never trusted in Christ and in your spirit, knelt before the cross on which God gave his son for you, may I urge you, fix your eyes on Jesus, repent and live. And know that if the whole world should crumble away and if the sky would burn, be assured that the salvation being offered to you is in a kingdom that cannot be shaken and being kept by a God who does not change. Or if God just wired you as a 90s Christian, God bless you. Not in the southern sense. (laughs) I mean that Jesus was and is indeed complete in grace and mercy and compassion and people like me need you to remind me, to remind us of God's tenderness and love, but all the same, fix your eyes on Jesus and know that the devil's defeat was not won with sentimentality. It was won with blood and power and holiness and a face set like flint that would not swerve from the unchangeable character of God's purpose. And if God made you a middle-ages Christian like he did me, first of all, I'm sorry for the people around you, Um, especially your spouse. If you are married, pray for them. Uh but preaching to myself here fix your eyes on Jesus and hear the voice that calmed the sea hear the thundering authoritative non-negotiable voice of God Almighty saying my grace is sufficient for you may all we believers consider what has been promised to us and consider the unchangeable character of the one who has made those promises He has gone ahead of us into glory and there has prepared a place for us. This he has promised and the one who has promised is faithful. Amen. Oh God, our Father, we come before you in prayer knowing that our high priest is before you. At your right hand, Jesus, our God and our King, hears our prayers and brings them before you as a sweet aroma a fragrance of worship made acceptable by his righteousness. God, we have none in ourself, but what you have made holy, what you have made clean, none can call common. God, we worship you, we adore you, we are in awe of who you are and what you have always been. And we are thankful that you are above us, you are before us, you are prior to and exceed us in all things. And in that, we can have hope that you will not change, that you will not you will not fail as we do, you will not give up, you will not grow weary. God, we love you. And in the name of your son Jesus we pray. Amen.